I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 20th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi's largest hospital gets two grants to research the causes and fallout of violence. Then, the Delta harvest season was good, but ports along the river are backed up. We explore the economic impact. Plus, a Mississippi university is part of a Smithsonian project to preserve and share African-American history. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A team of doctors from the University of Mississippi Medical Center have been awarded millions of dollars to research causes of and solutions to violence. The $7.5 million is split between two grants, one focused on gun violence, the other domestic violence. Psychologists like Dr. Matthew Moore say they are interested in seeing what interventions can be enacted to protect victims of domestic violence. The Associate Professor of Psychology at UMMC shares more with our Kobe Vance. Rates of uh, intimate partner violence are are really high among women in general across the country, are especially high in Mississippi. Something like 40% of uh, women in Mississippi experience some type of physical violence uh, that is uh, from an intimate partner uh, during their lifetimes. And so what we're trying to do with this study is um, to figure out how better to screen amongst this population of women who have both substance use disorders and intimate partner violence exposure. Um, and that's a difficult thing to do. And, and the big gap that we're trying to address is that this kind of screening is not done very routinely. Something like 10 to 40 percent um, of providers will routinely screen for these problems among these women. And uh, there's a variety of factors that explain that. Some, some of it is just like feeling like they lack the adequate training to do so. Some feel discomfort in asking these questions. They don't uh, feel uh, comfortable outlining kind of the limits to confidentiality. But I think the most important problem is that they feel helpless in that um, if they do identify a woman who might need these services, they don't feel like they know where to send these women for the appropriate sort of evidence-based treatments for these conditions. And so what we're trying to do is to develop like a statewide registry that lists all of these providers that's easily accessible and that can connect these women with uh, the kinds of treatments that they really need. Can you speak to the connecting thread, which is addressing violence here in Jackson? Jackson is one of the highest violence rates in the nation right now. What could this do for the city, and how could it be used to... How is the city of Jackson being chosen to be the center of this study? Yeah. So I think Jackson is maybe... um, maybe the best place to be doing this kind of research right now. I think, you know, you mentioned earlier in one of your questions, but rates of 
um, rates of homicide are, uh, you know, three times higher in Jackson than the rest of the state of Mississippi, 15 times higher than the national average. So rates of violence are extremely high here. Um, and yet we don't fully understand why that is. And there's been great research that's been done in other parts of the country that's focused on different on cities that have different kinds of demographics uh, to Jackson. And so I think we need to understand, um, you know, we know that social determinants of health are important, but how are they playing a role here in Jackson in particular? Um, and what can we do to change that? Um, and so I think our goal here is to kind of engage the community, as has been said by others, um, engaging community organizations who are involved in this, not assuming that, you know, as researchers that we understand things better than the people who see it um, on a day-to-day -day basis um, in the community itself. So working with them to better understand what seems to work from their perspective, and then how can we rigorously test that using the scientific method. So that's kind of what our approach is, and I think we'll be a successful. Anything else you'd like to share with Mississippians about these studies that y'all are working on and your hopes for the future of what these could do for you know, not just Jackson, but the city, the state, and the nation? Yeah. Well, I'm excited. I think this is kind of an important step towards making um, Jackson in general and UMMC in particular kind of a, you know, um, a sort of a leading player in this conversation on, on gun violence. Um, and I think, you know, we have something unique to contribute because of the sort of social and cultural circumstances that we have here that differ from other parts of the nation. So really being sort of a beacon of how to do this kind of research in the South. Dr. Matthew Morris is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. The second study aims to better examine how early interventions with victims of gun violence can prevent future trauma. The city of Jackson has one of the highest rates of gun violence in the nation. Dr. Laura Verrier works in emergency medicine at the hospital. She says this study will be a collaborative effort with the community. What we hope to get out of this is to create a network of community partners where um, so we can start addressing the root causes of violence and address the social determinants of firearm use. And the ultimate goal of that is to decrease firearm injuries, decrease the number of victims that we're seeing in the emergency department, decrease recidivism. And there are a lot of downstream effects to that. So if we can decrease gun violence, then we can decrease all the aftermath that happens with that. We've seen such a rise in gun violence here in Jackson over the past few years. What do you think this research is going to mean, not just for the city, but potentially larger populations that are facing gun violence across the nation? I think this really says to our community that we care, um, that this is something that we really want to um, be a part of changing that pattern. Because there has been, in the last 10 years, there's been a 50% increase in the amount of gun violence in Jackson. And uh, that's unacceptable, and that, that is a public health crisis, and that is something that we need to start addressing. From the emergency room, what's been your perspective of this rise in gun violence? So we're seeing a lot of uh, young gunshot wound victims, and there are times when the emergency department is completely overwhelmed, where all the ORs are opened emergently, and we are just stretched thin uh, from a resource standpoint because we're seeing so many victims. And how, how do you think these implementations of these, um, this research and the preventative aspect of this research can help reduce those rates of gun violence? So we're going to we are going to help reduce the rates of gun violence by addressing the root causes. So this is where we look at why are people involved in gun in the gun violence to begin with? And we know that there are a number of social determinants of firearm uh, use and injury that are at play in Jackson. So studies have shown that elements such as economic instability, food insecurity, unemployment, 
those all contribute to and kind of push people into gun violence. And so by developing programs that we can address those things, we're going to be addressing the root causes of violence. Anything else you'd like to share with Mississippians about this research or other projects you're working on right now? Well, what I'd like to communicate is just that we really hope to bring together the um, the elements of the community that we already have. There are a number of community um, resources and organizations who have been doing great work for a long time in Jackson. So we want to maximize our ability to create change through collaboration with them. Laura Verrier is an emergency medicine doctor at UMMC. Experts involved in the study say the findings of the multi-year research could be universally beneficial. Coming up, the Delta harvest season was good, but ports along the Mississippi River are backed up. So we explore the economic effects. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. It's harvest season in the Magnolia State, and the unusually dry conditions haven't been a problem, producing strong yields, but extremely low water levels along the Mississippi River have stalled the shipping of those crops. The state's most important agriculture exports, corn and soybean, have been loaded onto barges, but many are stuck in the port, waiting for higher water levels before they can be moved downriver. Will Maples is an agricultural Economists with the Mississippi State, or rather, economists with the Mississippi State Extension Center. And he tells our Rhonda Dunaway this holdup in shipping is affecting the market for these commodities. The Ohio River Valley is pretty dry right now, also. Uh, they're kind of rated as abnormally dry, but really, it's looking up in the Missouri River watershed. So, up through Missouri, up into Nebraska, Iowa areas are facing facing very serious drought conditions right now also. And so really just all across the Midwest is dry weather. So if it's not raining up there, that water is not going to be flowing past our ports in Mississippi. So tell me, how um, how has that affected uh, this year's um, crops and what does our harvest look like? Um, were we able to mitigate the drought? So the best I understand, because I'm an economist, not the agronomist, but from my talks with them, it hurt our corn pretty hard. So there's pretty dry weather uh, at some key times of corn development uh, in June and July that took a toll on that on the dry land corn crop at least. So currently, the USDA has our yield estimates for this year for corn at 167 bushels an acre, which is down, let's see, about 14 bushels from last year. We're at 181 bushels last year. So this dry weather definitely has 
impacted the corn crop the most. And so, and uh, on soybeans, though, we, mm-hmm. soybeans were actually projected to have a record high yield this year. So the issue with barges getting uh, being able to get shipped out, is that having any effect? Uh, and do you know of any companies that are, you know, suffering right now because they can't get their, their grain shipped out? Yes, um, it, it's, it's had a pretty good effect, especially on, over on the river to the, to the farmers that sell to those river elevators. So we did see basis levels over on the river drop significantly. So basically when I say basis levels drop means the price farmers are getting also dropped. And, you know, for this issue to hit right during the harvest, especially for a lot of the farmers that don't have storage or anything else to do with their grain besides take it to the elevator, they ended up getting lower prices than they would have if the river levels had stayed high and they'd been able to move grain efficiently. I mean, I'm sure it's hurting all those guys on the river. Without the the river levels, they can't fill up barges and move it as efficiently as possible. And it hits hard because when we talk about grain sales, right after harvest is when we're moving the most barges down the river because that's when we're also exporting most of our grain is in November, December, January. It's the big time for our soybeans to get exported out of the country before Brazil's harvest starts kicking in. So being able to, for the three-month period to be able to not be able to move grain down the river, it's hitting us at the worst possible time of the year. Dr. Maples, is there any other thing that you might want to add uh, for our listeners uh, before I let you go? Still, overall, I'd just say kind of closing is uh, for, for the farmers, it's, it's been tough for them to get growing. And, I mean, if, if they didn't make a crop because of the dry weather, that always is a big impact. But prices are still good right now. But there is also the concern from their profitability standpoint that they had really high input costs this year. Right. So while we're seeing good prices, the fact that the river levels are kind of impacting the current prices they can get, and with these high input costs they're having to pay off, margins are still going to be there for most producers this year, but also it could be tight in some cases, especially for these folks that had some difficulty getting the crop grown. Will Maples is an agricultural economist with the Mississippi State Extension Service. Coming up, a Mississippi University is part of a Smithsonian project to preserve and share African-American history. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you love MPB, wouldn't you love to work here? We're a lot more than radio voices. We're looking for teachers and administrative assistants. We need professionals to work with social media, HR, and IT. Remind your friends and family who are looking for their dream job to consider Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Check out the careers link from mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. 
students and staff at Jackson State University are working to preserve African-American history through a national program. The History and Culture Access Consortium aims to collect and share archives that tell the stories of African-Americans. JSU is one of five HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, selected to participate by the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History. Garrett Lee is the program manager at the Margaret Walker Museum at Jackson State. He says the initiative hopes to provide easier access to the histories and records these universities hold. We have these HBCUs that have these wonderful archives and museums in them and stuff, but uh, looking at just the historical lack of access to um, these things, not only these collections, but also just um, black history in general. So this is um, an initiative to uh, start off this uh, concept of making these collections and just the history in general more accessible to the public. The support that the Smithsonian is giving us um, is several fold. On one level, um, we are working with them to go through our collections and decide what items we want to make part of this um, larger project. Now, this project is two-pronged itself. It's one is a digitization of as much of our collections as we can do um, that we will eventually have on a public-facing website for free. So we're basically taking what's in our archives and our museums um, and creating them uh, digital forms of them and making them public. And then also um, we're taking some of the physical artifacts, um, be they um, are, you know, just like I said, artifacts or, or pieces of art, or especially for us here at Jackson State, we're very uh, manuscript and document heavy in our collection. Um, so we're creating um, a traveling exhibit that will go all over the world to showcase collections from these HBCUs. Give us an idea of what type of items that you are looking at to decide if they should be archived or not. So um, here at Jackson State, um, our, like I said, our archives are pretty are very manuscript and document heavy. Uh, we already, um, over a decade ago, back when I was a grad assistant here at Jackson State, when I was a grad student, we digitized uh, Margaret Walker's personal paper collection, which I think came out to about 35,000 pages or something like that. So what we've done is we've pulled several collections of oral histories uh, that exist right now on old cassette tapes and things like that. So we're digitizing them uh, really for preservation purposes, but also we have um, oral histories that were recorded all the way back in the 60s and 70s um, that have existed on these tapes for that long. Um, and they are people, for, for instance, one of them is called Good Old Days. And back in the 70s, they had senior citizens uh, recollect about their days um, in Mississippi and more specifically Jackson. And we have people telling stories from as far back as the 19th century um, and their voices telling those stories. So we're going to be able to digitize uh, some of those um, and make those available online so people can get, um, like, a, you know, firsthand direct account of things that happened back in the 19th century. We also have um, another oral history collection, the Robert Clark collection, with multiple interviews with him in 1983, um, as well as interviews with a lot of his um, colleagues and close associates associates in 2006. So those are all being digitized. On top of that, my favorite collection 
is uh, the Frankie Adams Johnson uh, Black Panther collection. Uh, she was, um, or still is, she's still around. She was a woman um, from Mississippi who uh, moved up to New York and got involved in the Black Panther Party um, in the 1960s and 70s. And we have her entire collection. Uh, we have um, over 500 or 600 pages of correspondence, several of her journals, her political buttons collection. Was she killed or is she still living? Well, she's still living. She actually moved back to Mississippi um, and taught here in the English department at Jackson State for several years until she retired. Um, so she uh, gave her collection. I think when I think when she retired, she gave her collection to us here at Margaret Walker Center. So all um, these so, collections, are they just going to be on Jackson State's website or will they be on multiple websites featured like, say, on the Smithsonian site and other institutions? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the initial phase of this project is that the consortium, the five HBCUs that we're all working together, we're creating um, a unique website with our collections all together. And then on the back end, you'll have all of these things that are just archived that scholars uh, can dig through. So it's going to have this really cool public facing side, which will bring kind of recognition to the collections and see how we all work together as HBCUs. Um, so we will eventually host all of this. Um, we're actually, we're going to host, it'll all be hosted through George Mason University and their program called Omega S, which is what we're uploading um, everything into for the website. Um, and then eventually we will have all of ours, um, our own collection here on servers. And at some point when this project is over, we'll be looking forward um, to creating our own Jackson State uh website, but that'll be more than five years down the road. So at first, it's going to be a wholly unique website uh, that has all these collections in conversation with each other and interacting with each other. Kind of be a, a, a way to showcase the way we've all been interacting with each other with this project. The website uh, will uh, be indicative of that work that we've been doing. Ultimately, what does this do for Jackson State University? Well, uh, for us, you know, here at Margaret Walker Center, we are uh, a museum and an archive and a national African-American uh, history studies um, center. So what it does for the center is anything that we can get out for the public um, increases our visibility. Um, so uh, we can get our things into the hands of more people. And for instance, when someone digs through some boxes of letters or eventually, or as they can even do with Margaret Walker stuff, digs through digital archives, people are creating new works out of this stuff. There are things in our archives that haven't been touched since they've been archived or maybe looked at a few times by scholars. So the visibility of it for us, it's just so huge. And, you know, we're a small museum on the scale of the museums we work with. Um, but that's very important um, that people uh, ultimately see what we have, what we can offer. Um, and like I said, the big thing is just getting this information, this history um, out there to people. Uh, the reason we are all um, African-American historians is because we are passionate about the idea of getting uh, this stuff out to the public, which um, for a lot of our history in America, let's be honest, was intentionally um, kept under uh, under wraps. And now that it's, um, you know, not like that anymore, we still have years to untangle of getting this stuff out there. So anything we can do to make ourselves more public and visible ultimately helps us as a center, and it helps uh, Jackson State University for, you know, 
the scholarly aspect of it, the research aspect of it, uh, the publicity aspect of it, fundraising, all of that stuff will be eventually tied into uh, how much more we can get our name out there for the work that we do here. All right. Well, Garrett Lee with the Margaret Walker Center at Jackson State University. Thank you so much for speaking with us about this opportunity that you are involved in as well as the institution. We appreciate your time in speaking with us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.